Good morning. Uh, as James said, I'm Billy, um, just the better looking version of James. Um, same hair, same build, just a lot more attractive. Um, just kidding. Uh, I'm humbled and honored uh, to be here today to be speaking with you. God is good, and I love this church. Um, I love the people that I see here now. I love the people that uh, call this church home. I love the bride of Christ. Uh, there's no more important entity on the planet than Jesus' bride. Um, at Christ Point, we want to point people to Jesus. That's our DNA. That's why we exist. Uh, this is our heartbeat. Um, one of our core four statements is encountering the life-transforming Word of God. Uh, we take that very seriously. We want, we want that for everybody. We believe that as we study God's Word, as we experience God's Word, and as we encounter His Word, that it changes everything. It changes us from the inside out. It impacts every area of our lives. And we want this, as I said, for all of us. And in doing this, sometimes we'll do topical sermons. You'll hear James talk about a particular topic. But more often than not, we'll be walking through the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I love that. I love that about this church. Uh, the reason I do is that it takes the noise and the drama and the activity and the chaos of the world and of my life and puts it where it's supposed to be, which is behind God's Word. Um, and that's really comforting to me. It's comforting to my soul, um, and I hope it is to yours, because the gospel is the absolute best news we'll ever hear. Uh, there's nothing better. God's Word is living, it's active, uh, it's unchanging, it's perfect, and it's always effective. It's always effective. And so we study His Word and it impacts every area of our lives. Okay, so today we're going to continue our study in the book of Mark. Uh, today's passage is from chapter 12, the first 12 verses. If you want to look it up, uh, it'll be on the screen. <laughs> It's about the kindness and severity of God. Okay, the kindness and severity of God. In case you didn't know this already, we're going to be in the book of Mark until about the year 2026. Okay, so give or take a couple of months. Uh, but that's a good thing. Uh, essentially, there are three sections, and if this thing falls, just ignore it. Um, Essentially, there are three sections to the book of Mark. Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 8 talk about uh, who is Jesus. It asks the question, who is Jesus? Chapters 9 and 10 answer that he's the suffering king. Okay, he's the suffering king. And then chapters 11 through 18 address how Jesus is going to save the world and the impact of that. Okay? Um, and I don't know about you, but I love a good story. I really enjoy a good story. I listen to the Bible in my car, and I, you might find this cheesy, but I have one of the versions that has the background noise. As you listen to the words, you can hear the crowd, or, or you can hear, if Jesus is walking by the lake, you can hear the water. And I just love that because I picture myself being there. And so as I read this parable, um, I'm asking myself some questions. One of the questions I have is, what was it like to be a religious leader in that time? Imagine, I imagine kind of ordering my life to be seen in a certain way and being very proud of that. 
And this Jesus guy drops in on the scene and is essentially wrecking everything. I mean, a few chapters ago, Jesus told them what they were thinking. I mean, he heals the guy in the synagogue on the Sabbath. They have some thoughts. They don't share those thoughts. The version I read says they just, they're thinking some things. Jesus says, why do you think those things? I mean, that's, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that would strike me as kind of weird. This guy is telling me what I think. And so this is a little unnerving. Another question I have is, what was it like to be one of the disciples? I mean, this is, maybe this is just kind of how I'm wired, but uh, I think it had to be at least a little bit like being a member of a rock band. And, I, and I don't miss, I'm, I'm not talking about being one of the main guys in Aerosmith or something. I'm talking about like the bass player for Lady Gaga or something, or the, the drummer for Elton John. No one is ever there to see you. They don't go see Elton John to see the drummer. But they are there to see the guy, and you go behind the rope. You're part of the team. You're part of the band. There's, there's, um, there's some benefits to being in the band, okay? You've got to be at least a tiny bit special. And I just imagine that that's probably pretty cool. And so Jesus starts to tell another one of his stories with a point, which is what a parable is, a story with a point. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus was questioned about his authority by the chief priests, the teachers, and the elders. So these religious leaders are questioning Jesus about his authority. They ask him a question. He answers their question with a question that they then can't or won't answer. So it's getting a little tense. The triumphal entry has happened. Jesus is intentionally, at least as I read this, he is intentionally marching and moving towards his ultimate crucifixion. So it's kind of time for him to start upsetting the people that are ultimately going to kill him. And he's really starting to get serious about that. And he's talking to these religious leaders at at this particular parable as well. I picture there could be other people around. You know, the disciples are maybe there. Um, Maybe uh, the crowd. He's in the temple courts. And maybe there's some people walking around the courts. But I kind of picture things getting quiet. And uh, people are waiting to hear what's next. Okay, and so this parable talks about God's grace and God's wrath. Okay, it's going to cover both, uh, his mercy as well as his judgment. So let's read this in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And I have the ESV version. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they had perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They left him and went away. Let's pray right quick. Uh, Father, thank you for this time, uh, this ordained time. Guide us. uh, Let us hear what you want us to hear and see what you want us to see. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's clarify up front who the players in the parable are. Uh, The owner is God. Okay, This may be obvious to you, but it's not necessarily obvious to everybody. It certainly wouldn't necessarily be obvious to me in all contexts. The vineyard in this context represents the nation of Israel. Um, The servants are the prophets. The son is Jesus. And the tenants are the Jews, in particular their leaders. Okay, and then you have this group called the others, that's everybody else, okay, or the Gentiles, they might refer to. When I read this parable, I have some immediate thoughts and questions. Um, one thought I, I have is, uh-oh, uh, somebody just got taken to the woodshed. And it seems to me that it's the important people. And they're not very happy about it. That's one thought. A few questions that I have is, uh, that I ask when I read something like this is, what, what is God, what is he trying to say to us? What does this tell me about God? What does it tell me about me? What does it tell me, what does it tell you about you? And why does it even matter? I mean, why is it in here? Okay, so in answering these questions, I'm going to share five quick observations. We'll be here for about two and a half hours. Okay, I'm kidding. No, it's going to go a lot quicker than that. Uh, But five observations. The first observation is that God is active. Okay, God is active. As we read Mark 12, 1, what does the owner do? He planted a vineyard. He put up a fence. He dug a pit. He built a tower, and he leased it to tenants. And I love this. In the first verse, I'm, I'm, I'm floored because this tells me that the owner, who is God, is engaged This tells me that he's leaning in, he's working, he's interested, and he's active. And I love this about God. Have you ever thought that God was not involved? Or that he wasn't interested? Or that he was at least otherwise occupied? Um, I know I have. I look at the ups and downs of my life and the times uh, that I've wondered if he was really there. I wish that I could say that my faith has always been unshakable, but it hasn't. I put my family through a financial crisis back in 2007, and I say I did because I I entered into a business venture that was ill-advised. It didn't go well, and I wouldn't quit. Rudy's like one of my favorite movies. I just wouldn't quit. And so it didn't end well, and I still, it was back in 2007, I still have PTSD from that. There were times that I thought, I was convinced that God had abandoned me. Because I, I'm an idiot. He's not around. I mean, look at all this. It's a train wreck. God's not in this. And the, the downside to my family is that they were, married, they were with me. So he's not with them either. And so I was, I was fairly convinced that God was nowhere nearby. But in looking back at it, I realized it was the exact opposite. 
the complete and total opposite. He was closer than ever. I look at the relationships that were, that were formed and that were cemented. I look at my marriage that, that somehow made it through and as I stand here today, feel stronger than ever. That's true, right? I mean, I, I've, that's true. I didn't really ask Anne Marie that. I didn't want, okay, in case y'all go verify, is that really true? Um, it feels stronger than ever to me. Um, a new and clearer way of seeing the world that I would not have been able to do or see or understand had I not gone through all that. And so as I look back, I realized that God was intimately involved. He was very active. And that was, that's really good news for me and it's really good news for you. The second observation is that God is patient even when we are idolaters. So God is patient even when we are idolaters. As we read in verses 2 through 5, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So as I'm reading this, I realize that the owner has gone to great expense for the vineyard. He set things up nicely. He expects at least a relatively bountiful harvest. He turns everything over to supposedly reliable tenants. He's thinking he can trust these guys. They had at least a decent deal. Okay, they would work the vineyard and share in some of the profit. So he sends uh, a servant to collect what's rightfully his. It seems like a relatively you know, agreeable arrangement, or at least reasonable, at least to me. But how do the tenants respond to the servants? They abuse them and they treat them horribly, even shamefully. They dishonor them. The owner sends servants again and again and again. And what do the tenants do? They abuse them and mistreat them again and again and again. And it seems to apparently, at least according to the parable, it gets worse over time. At least that's one of the things that I draw from it. And who again are the servants? The servants are the prophets. As we look in the Old Testament, how are the prophets treated by the Israelites? Not too good. It didn't go too well. Some examples. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. We learned that in Jeremiah 20. Tradition says that Isaiah was sawed in two. I mean, let's go there for a second. Think of that. Sawed in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple. Nehemiah chapter 9 says, But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets, who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And in the context of this parable, at the time of this parable, John the Baptist had just been beheaded not that long ago. But one thing the Bible teaches us is that God is not moody. He's not temperamental. He's not insecure. He doesn't have a bad day. He's God, right? He is patience. And just like the par in the parable, God shows extreme patience with the idol-loving, rebellious people of Israel. And likewise, he shows extreme patience with me and with you. And that is very good news for us. 
One area of struggle for me has actually been with patience. Uh, if y'all know me, you probably know that. Uh, God has shown extreme patience with my impatience. Maybe my lack of patience is one of the downsides to being focused, or maybe that's just a romantic way of viewing it. <laughs> maybe it's just that my plans are the most important thing in my mind. Maybe I'm front and center in my own world. But a few years ago, God graciously allowed me to be confronted with the ultimate patience maker. And that was when my beautiful, sweet daughter, Ava, became a teenager. Okay? She became a teenager. And I heard a friend say, uh, I think he was quoting somebody else, but he took credit for it. But it was really smart. It was really poignant for me. The only thing worse than a teenager acting like a full-on teenager is that teenager's parent acting like a full-on teenager. And that's what I was doing. That's how I responded. This was messy for me. I'm decent at winning my point, especially in my own house where I pay the bills. Anne-Marie can win a point, and I let her win a point. But everybody else, I'm supposed to win. But her arguments, Ava's arguments and Ava's comebacks were so illogical, they were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I didn't have a comeback because there was no comeback. I was stunned and I could not fast forward this phase of her life. And I could not fast forward my response to this. I couldn't just instantly become more patient. It was driving me crazy, so we were butting heads over and over and over. And so I started to pray to God over and over and over. And I kept doing it. I didn't want to wreck my daughter because I couldn't handle her stuff. And God started to work on me. I'm convinced he was working on Ava too. Um, but God showed me something as I started to, to gradually allow him in um, and let go a little bit. He showed me something that turned out to be revolutionary for me. Not only in my relationship with Ava, but in every relationship I've had since I started doing this. And that was that at that particular stage of Ava's life, me loving her well would be accomplished as much or more by what I did not say as it would by what I did say. And I'm not talking about learning that, uh, or, or, or abdicating my role or disengaging. I'm talking about learning that I did not have to have the last word. It became clear to me that being there for her, praying for her, and interestingly, loving, my, her, loving her mother well, would go further in her spiritual development and security than me winning any point or making any brilliant argument. By God's grace and God's patience, I was humbled. And I learned to simply say less and in some cases just shut up. Just let her off the hook. And trust that God would finish in her what he had started in her. And that God would finish in me what he had started in me and that he would do it on his time. 
So recently, I took the bold step as I was getting ready for this to ask Anne Marie if I'm patient. I said, Anne Marie, am I patient? And she said, not, not really. <laughs> no, not really. And she was sweet about it. And we started talking. And what was interesting that it became clear in our discussion that the person that I had previously struggled the most to be patient with in our family, Ava, was now the person that I was the most patient with in our family. And so I only mention that to say that there's improvement. She's still a teenager. And I'm still jacked up. And so it's not perfect, but there's improvement. God's at work. God has given me another chance and another chance and another chance and another chance. God does the same with all of us. And the owner of the parable does the same thing with the tenants. In verses 4 and 5, he says that, it says that after sending the first servant, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, many others, that word many, many others, some they beat and some they killed. And this is stunning to me. I don't know if it is to you, but I have to ask, why did, the, why did these caretakers, caretakers, why did these tenants respond with this kind of venom? And I think that's an important question that we have to answer. What's driving this? And it's their desire. They want something. They want what the owner has. Their desire, like all desire, does not stay stagnant. It grows. And if left unchecked, it can become something deadly. James 1 verses 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so this takes us to my next observation where we see exactly how far they'll go to get what they think is theirs or what they want. Number three, God extends ultimate grace even when we are fools. God extends ultimate grace even when we are fools. In verses 6 through 8, we read that he, still had, uh, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So verse 6 says that God sends the beloved son, which is translated his only son. He gives the tenants one last final opportunity to respond favorably. But how do they respond? They reject him the harshest of all. They kill him and they throw his body out of the vineyard. In the parable, the reasoning of the tenants is complete and utter foolishness. Maybe they thought killing the son would allow them to take possession of the vineyard. But regardless, whatever their reasoning, we have to ask, what is driving them to these kind of actions? What is driving them to this extreme behavior? Did they really think they would get away with it? What causes this venom? And the answer is they're coveting. Their desire 
was unchecked. It became covetousness. Coveting, the, some text I was reading says, coveting makes them want what they should not want, what is not theirs. It fed their pride and moved them to fill it at all costs. Other people became things to exploit. Their desires became their gods. They thought that by erasing God from their lives, they could take control of their earthly as well as their eternal destiny. So you might ask, so what? Why, does our, why, do the, why do we have to always talk about our seemingly small desires, these small cravings? Why do they matter so much? At church, we're always talking about be careful of what you long for. And the reason is because this stuff, this longing, this coveting, drives all of humanity. It drives everything. Since the fall, we've wanted to be like God. We've wanted to have what God has, do what God does. We've wanted to be in control of our own destiny. In the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina, I don't know if you know this or not, but you happen to live in one of the fastest growing suburbs in one of the fastest growing cities in the most economically developed country in the history of the world. You put that in context and you say, whether you live in Concord or Davidson, whether you live in Huntersville or Kannapolis, how much of what we do is driven by, driven by wanting what other people have or what we think they have? We want that person's, you know, I want that guy's bottom line and she wants that girl's waistline. We want what we think other people have. And it starts small. But if it's left unchecked, and if we're living outside of the authentic community that we've been talking about lately, it can grow and become desires that become demands. And that's when it can get really ugly. One area uh, we see this is when marriages break up. In the vast majority of affairs, it's rarely a, a random thought one day where somebody gets up and says, you know what, I think I'll go have an affair with that coworker or my neighbor and completely train wreck my entire life. I think I'll go detonate the lives of my kids forever. It seems like a kind of day to do that. That's usually not how it works. It's a progression from something seemingly small that takes us where we never thought possible. And so their covetous hearts drove them to kill the son, and it feels, at least as I read this parable, that it's relatively hopeless. It's pretty hopeless at this point. It's definitely dark. But the story doesn't end there. And that's where we go to the fourth observation, which is one of my favorite, which is their loss is our gain. Their loss is our gain. We, we, learn, we read in verses 9 through 11, it answers the question of what the owner does at this point. So verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So after the son is killed, the owner does not just go away. He doesn't just pack up and go home. What does he do? He wipes them out. He kills the tenants. <laughs> Darn. That's pretty heavy. 
I thought this eye for an eye thing was over. Again, I find myself asking, did these guys not see this coming? Did they really think they could kill this guy's kid and get away with it? They didn't think, they, did they think he was dead? I mean, what, what, what gives? They got in way over their heads and they paid dearly for it. But the owner still doesn't stop there. What does he do? He gives the vineyard to others. I love this. This is where I was, I was thinking as I was getting ready. Am I going to be one of them shouting preachers or am I going to be one of these calm, cool, and collected guys? When I read something like this, I want to shout. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I've been around shouting and I'm going, why do they have to shout? Maybe it's because they read something like this and go, holy moly, are you kidding me? Who are the others? He doesn't just close up and go home. He continues to give and he finds other people to give it to. We see this throughout the Bible. God responds to the rejection of the Israelites by offering life to everyone. Everybody. And this is what we see here in this parable. So, where this resonates with me is I realize that by accepting Jesus as my Savior... And by following him, I am one of the others. And that's good news for me. And I got some decent news for you. If you have accepted Jesus, and if you follow him, you are one of the others. And I want to stay here for a second. Because anytime you get a room full of a couple hundred people, there are going to be at least some that have spent most of their lives, if not all of their lives, feeling like they're on the outside looking in. Wondering why they can't go where those people go, why they're not on that email list, why they can't go to dinner here, why they're not invited here. Why can't they be with the cool people? What do you have to do to be one of the special ones? Where's the inside club? This says that... The, <laughs> this is it. If you accept Jesus, you are in the vineyard. The family of God, the nation of Israel, is opened up to everyone. You are in. You cannot be any more in than you already are. If you have Jesus in your heart and if you repent and follow him. There is no inside club. More than knowing Jesus and having him know you. That's it. That is such good news that we can now, and I put myself in this category too because I've felt like an outsider. I mean, look at me. Come on. Y'all know me. I can be an outsider. I can jack up anything. But Jesus has said, Billy, you're in. You're in. The pressure's off. Let it go. Stop. Stop worrying about that. Come to me. And he says the same thing to you. Verses 10 and 11 confirm that God takes the rejected son, raises him up to be the cornerstone of the gospel in the entire universe. As Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Charles Spurgeon says, If you reject him, talking about Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. <laughs> 
If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love manifest. So what this says is that the owner used the evil intentions of the tenants for others' good. And this is what God does. And I love this about God. I love this about my Heavenly Father. Anyone's evil intentions towards me, he's going to ultimately use for my good. (laughs) Are you kidding me? But it also says, and this is where we, we get to the other part of the story. It also says that God gets the final word. His judgment will come. The tenants killed the owner's son. He's angry about it. And it does not end well for them. And that brings us to my final observation, which is a question. How will you respond? The religious leaders responded horribly. How will you respond? We read, as we read in verse 12 of the parable, and they were seeking to arrest him, they being the religious leaders, but they feared the people, so they're scared. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Oh, they're brilliant. So they left him and went away. One of the saddest verses I've read in a while is that. They left him and went away. Again, who is the owner? The owner is God. Who is the son? It's Jesus. Who are the tenants who reject the owner and the son? It's the religious leaders, the Pharisees. But who else are the tenants? We are. I am. You are. Who killed Jesus? The religious leaders, the Pharisees did with help from the Romans. And we did. Our sin and our rebellion killed the God of the universe. So who rejects Jesus? In the parable, the tenants reject Jesus. In history, the Pharisees and religious leaders rejected Jesus. And we did. We rejected. And some in this room probably still do. We killed God's son, and he has every right to snuff us out. What I want to make sure you, everyone leaves here, again, if you get a room full of 200 people together, there's going to be a couple, even if you're in a Bible-loving church, there are going to be a few that are kind of just along for the ride. And I I just feel compelled to make sure you know that just because your spouse or your parent loves and follows Jesus doesn't mean you're in. Without repentance, there is no salvation. And so we find that what the parable describes um, as stated in Romans 11.22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Take note of the kindness and severity of God. Revelation 6.16 says that to reject God's Son is to invite the wrath of the Lamb into your life. Hebrews 10.31 says one of the heaviest things I've read. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We have this view of God being lovey and dovey but you don't want to fall into his hands 
from a judgment standpoint. I'm not sure how that lands on you, but it hits me weighty. This is heavy. The owner's response to the murder of his son is clear, sharp, and final. He avenges being rejected. Again, Charles Spurgeon says, this is, listen to me, if you're, if you're asleep, wake up. Listen to me here. This is, this is a, good, a good quote. Remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should like every person here that is unconverted to remember that there is no other gospel and no more sacrifice for sin. Christ declares that he that believes not shall be damned. There remains nothing but damnation for those who believe not in Jesus. Our response to the Son will decide our eternal destiny. Verse 12 in the parable shows a very disappointing response by the Pharisees. They left him and went away. The Bible is very clear. God offers us eternal forgiveness and eternal life through acceptance of Jesus as our Savior. We submit, He accepts. We repent, and He forgives. And if we believe, He keeps. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that all of this is foolishness and a stumbling block to them. For us, however, it is the power of God unto salvation. My prayer for you today is that you're included in the us that Paul talks about here. For those who are included, rejoice in this unparalleled gift. Nothing will ever, ever, ever compare to that. Nothing. There is no piece of good news you can get that's better. If you want to be included, you just need to pray and ask Jesus to forgive you and accept you into his kingdom, and he'll do it like that. This is very good news. This is a good day for those who accept. I'd be happy to talk with anyone at any time as well. So let's pray. Father, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your great news. Thank you. Let us in this room and everyone that hears this find you. In Jesus' name, amen.